Hi, my name is Ingrid. I'm one of your hosts of the Miseducation of the SLP, and I am here with one of our guest hosts, Ashanti. Hello, hello. Nice to be back. Welcome, welcome, young lady. Oh, yes, you called me young. Yes, girl. Hello, let's get it. Let's get it. <laughs> we is revisiting what is young these days. Angela Bassett, you know, J-Lo, they done changed my world, okay? Yes, ma'am. So I am basically coming today to discuss um, an issue that a lot of people aren't really aware of when it comes to the SLP um, space in the professional environment. And it is what it is like to get old <laughs> as a speech language pathologist. Uh, you know, this, this is not the profession that, um, you know, is very kind to the aging SLP. No, not even sort of kind of, or really like it's one of those spaces where you sit back and you're just like, it wasn't good after like my fifth year, I kind of stayed the same and now it's getting worse. <laughs> and that's just really the, the authentic reality of this lovely profession. Mm. There was a, a couple of things that have happened this week since um, I have been, you know, kind of on the internet stratosphere since I've been back from my um, escape to Africa to <laughs> renew who I am. And I listened to this gentleman by the name of Jonathan White discuss how he quit being an SLP after uh, eight years, because he started after his bachelor's degree. He became a SLP in the school system, um, then went, got his master's, also got his clinical doctorate, which I commend him for, because I don't know why anyone would continue their education in this, um, you know, in this, in this profession, unless they had some type of direction for academia or something like that right clinical practice it just it doesn't make any sense right it doesn't pay that much more if if it if at all to have your, to have your phd yeah Not, oh it wasn't it wasn't a phd it was a clinical doctor oh i'm sorry excuse me clinical doctor clinical doctor it's a little bit different but still it's a situation where the doctor does nothing to change your experience on the uh clinical floor so i commended him for doing that but he really he said something about this profession being really about racism like he just was like this is a bad or um thing for me to be in because i'm a black male in it and i sat back and i was just like wow okay now ashanti have you personally experienced racism in this profession you know i've i don't want to say that i've experienced racism um i have been treated in the manner of, you know, oh, you speak another language too bad, you're still not getting more money. Or, you know, I, I've been in one uh, skilled nursing setting kind of in the backwoods area of Florida. <laughs> and was, uh, you know, on my very first day informed by the, the rehab director, hey, you don't want to be around these parts when it gets dark, if you know what I mean. Uh, you're a little... You're, you've got a lot of melanin for, you know, for the people around here. 
Um, but I don't think that I've ever been treated um, in a racist manner unless I just haven't perceived it as such. You know, sometimes I'm just like, well, I'm here and you're going to have to deal with it. You know, I'm, I'm here in your space and I am brown and that's it. <laughs> so I don't necessarily experience my professional environment as racist. Um, I can't say that I have ever walked into a room and felt like people who were my peers did not respect that I knew everything about being a speech language pathologist. And I don't know if I conditioned that for myself because I walk into a room making everyone uncomfortable because I am walking in with so much knowledge and I just defeated the possibility that you could ever think that I ain't nothing but the best thing that walked in since, <laughs> I don't know. I really did not have an experience. I didn't have an experience in this profession, even with my racist patients, because God knows I've had racist patients. I've had patients call me the n-word beautifully like just eloquent like get this out of this room like, yeah. like oh, okay we were here now yes. okay yes. let me go ahead and sit down i'm literally the only speech pathologist you're going to be able to have access to so but to quit a profession because of racism um based on his experiences that's that's a really telling thing and i just keep going back like what is it within our field that causes people to feel this way. Like this is, we're supposed to be progressive in some ways because we are a female driven environment. And you would think that there would be a little bit more compassion, but at least in his experiences and his storytelling, that was not the case. Mm -hmm. And when I'm looking at this, the veteran story, I'm also looking at the business model and I'm looking at us as, other professionals along the line of of what longevity looks like to us. I think even myself, sometimes I look at somebody with 20 plus years of experience and I'm like, oh no, maybe you need to do some CEUs. Like, I don't know that I feel this level of, we should revere you for being a speech pathologist for extended periods of time. But she's incredibly knowledgeable. And there are plenty that are that way. I respected my professors Mm -hmm. for their years of expertise, but do we respect clinicians who are clinicians for that amount of time? Like, oh, you just automatically deserve stuff. Or do we start feeling like you need more? I don't know. It's fascinating though. It is. It is. And I, I don't know that I've encountered too many other SLPs with, you know, 20 plus, 30 plus years until this year. Uh, a colleague of mine re uh, retired last school year. Uh, she was right at 39, I believe, years with the school district. <laughs> mm. So, you know, that I was just kind of dumbfounded. But I don't, like you said earlier, I don't know that it made the rest of us automatically revere her. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I'm. I'm not sure if it holds if it holds the weight that it does in different professions when you when you are in the profession for that long. Right. So 
execution of the clinical practice is the area that I've always felt got the least amount of respect. Mm-hmm. And longevity in that seems to also feel that way. So when I'm talking to a clinician of 26 years, I'm looking at her like, madam. And I say madam because I respect in the British way. <laughs> let us let us dive in. So she, you know, went into her career in her CFY in the year of 1995. And when she went in in 1995, she went into adult hospitals and she did a lot of neuro. And when I was discussing what she felt was her miseducation in the experience, um, targeted, she had one story. But as she fleshed out her career, just in the general scope of just talking about things that she herself felt, she lives in the state of Indiana. And do you know that the state of Indiana is a very, very challenging state for speech language pathologists, especially in the school system? No, do tell. (laughs) Make sure I don't move there. Mm -hmm. It has the highest caseload numbers in the nation, according to her, for... um, SLPs, school-based caseloads. So what is your average in the caseload that you're working in right now? Do you know? Average right now is, it's it, it went down because of the pandemic. Some of our students uh, decided to go virtual. They kind of had to choose one way or the other. But um, right now we're sitting at 40, 45. Okay. Um, and that's so yeah. So her her um report was basically for Indiana, it's probably close to uh an estimate because she was very transparent that she's like, I'm making a really big estimate here, but based on some of the things I'm aware of and what I know, you could probably average 120 to 140 kids in the state of Indiana on your case. Stop. No way. How in the world is anyone effective, clinically effective with a caseload like that? I mean, Mm. anything above 50, 60, you are pushing paperwork 90% of your time because that's legal documentation and that's what takes priority. They don't say it, but that's what ends up happening. That or you're working off, you're working outside of uh, work hours consistently. There's no Mm. way. There's no way. Now you work in a school system, so you know, sister. Yes. (laughs) And actually, when I was in um, California, I was working four days a week as a contractor, and I had a caseload of 99. And I will tell you, I was consistently working outside of work hours to catch up for my mental, my, my sanity. Um, and finally one day, you know, the, the receptionist said, you need to stop doing that. Cause she saw me several times at a Starbucks on a Sunday, <laughs> spending two to three hours. She said, you got to stop that. Cause they're not, they are not going to understand what the workload is if it's just magically getting done. We're just hearing things like don't move to Indiana in the school system. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, 
if her if her ballpark estimate was accurate or is accurate, which I didn't have a time, I didn't have the um, time to research really because that's a little bit more in depth than what I'm I'm capable of doing. But if you go out there and you really just start looking and you start seeing, oh my God, if I apply for a school system position in Indiana, I might get bombarded with more students than I can deal with. Mm-hmm. And during this interview, I explained to her with some of some other SLPs I've been listening to on social media, how they're navigating those spaces where they're just like, how are we supposed to execute A, B, and C when I do D, E, and F mm-hmm. for all of those students? Mm-hmm. So I'm going to have to just let you know how my time and how my day works out. And they're able to give pushback on their caseload sizes because there's nothing data-driven to indicate what we as productive members of society, because we are the producers, you know, the mm-hmm. heroes and everything, you know, right. <laughs> we are the producers. There's nothing to say where our production, like it stops being effective in doing the job. Right. We don't have anything data driven. So we have to actually create it in the role. And so this solution that some of these other SLPs are like, this is how much time I spent on one student. Mm-hmm. How do you think I'm going to be able to do this with all of them? Because this is my job. This is what I'm expected to do. And this is the standard of care I'm going to provide. Because this is what is considered to be the best um, care that I could give based on actual in front of the patient and paperwork ratio. Right. And if it doesn't fit in an eight-hour day because you're asking me to have a caseload, that is significantly higher than anything feasible on the human scale. And we continue to do the job at some point, it's going to be a situation where we have failed in defending the profession. Correct. Correct. There's, there's got to be, like you said, there's got to be not just the pushback. There's, there has to come a point where somebody, everybody is digging their heels into the floor and saying, enough. We are not moving forward with this. This is ridiculous. Yeah. But, I mean, I'm still, I'm still stuck on the 120. Like I had 99. I cannot imagine an additional 31 students to oversee or yeah, 21, excuse me, to oversee and, and do no, <laughs> no one's oh getting God. seen. I just see the office meme that's like no 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 exactly. no 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 i just see it I exactly just see the gif. is it a gif is it a meme whatever it's the gif i feel like where you're just like no yes no 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 because no. why why are we doing that many patients that many students in a school year yeah and it's feasible but you know what also happens? I'm sorry to interrupt you. What also happens is you have your supervisor or, you know, whomever is in charge of that SPED department telling you as the clinician, you need to write the services for the, these this many students as one time a week for this many minutes. And these students have to be two times a week for this many students. You know, you don't, you don't actually individualize your therapy delivery model for these kids when you have that many. It becomes a cookie cutter, you know, prescribed thing for everyone all across the board when it shouldn't be. 
And that is what ends up being the situation for most spaces as an employee is that you're getting top-down instruction about how to do your job when you're supposed to be feeling as though I can do bottom-up, meaning I'm the professional, I know what I'm doing, let me tell the business Correct. what needs to happen, but that does require a lot of advocacy. Correct. I'm the expert in the room, let me tell everyone else what needs to happen, but that is not what goes on. Correct. No. And we need to kind of accept that. We need to move in a aware of, uh, of awareness. Excuse me. We need to move in a place of awareness of what we're doing. Okay. So her original 10 years was in adult neuro. And as she's telling me her story at the beginning of her adult neuro, neuro experience, she essentially said that when she left school, her professor at that time was like, you don't have to worry about right CBAs. That's not going to be anything in your scope. And you won't have to worry about it in your professional life. And then she goes into adult neuro. And what is she dealing with? The right CBAs. All of the time. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Boy, full of, let's discuss executive functioning. She's like, huh? What? What happened? I was told this wasn't going to be on the test. <laughs> Basically, when did this become a thing? And it just highlights the spaces between academics and actual clinical practice Correct. where clinicians are just going rogue. We're just creating all of this great stuff out here to be like, I need to accommodate this patient. And we're patient-centered in what we're executing and individual science. And then eventually we get so passionate about it that we fuse it and shove it down into the science of our profession and say, listen to what we're doing. And next thing you know, it's something that we're doing in this lovely scope of practice to the point where it's so broad that academics cannot keep up. Like, how can it? How can it? Because there's not enough PhDs in all the areas that we're super interested in. But in her particular story, it was 1995. So was the right-sided CVA, you know, a normal thing that SLPs were studying at that time? Mm. Or was it something that we were engaging in just because we knew it was a need and we were handling it as what I call scientists in the room that are like, this is affecting communication too. And we're actively moving in this way, actively moving in the space that communication actually it is impacted by many different things right and left sides of the brain are involved in communication in such a high level that we actually need to be involved in all of that regardless of what we originally thought was true we were evolving as a science i think we were moving forward so her experience just indicates so many reasons why there's still a gap between academia and clinical practices slps we do have that problem we do have that distance um, and so there's something to be understood about that. Um, and when I tie it back to what um, Jonathan was talking about in, in the space of racism, I do see that gap as well. I do see there's a cultural gap in the speech language pathology arena and being very diverse. It just doesn't know how to do that. Um, in some capacities, it's introduces a lot of things but in a lot of ways it just it's slow to move like a lot of sciences in healthcare and that's the thing about healthcare it just 
does not want to move quickly to be present in what is happening actively in society at the time and what's really required and what we, we need to do. So her story or her comments and her observations really stuck with me. So she's 26 years. She's out there. She's looking around. She's like, I want a job. And when she starts applying for jobs in her, her area, she doesn't get re- really a lot of feedback. She doesn't get a lot of calls. Really? She doesn't get anybody who's interested in her. And she's had plenty of years of experience in adults and in pediatrics. And she is passionate about the school system. She actually likes it. She feels like it is where she belongs. And I'm thinking to myself, schools, though? Really? Okay. IEPs. I heard things. You know, I'm not. (laughs) I said it's not for the faint of heart. (laughs) I am not an IEP person. I am not a laminating person. I am not a school-based person. I'm just, I'm not sticking stickers anywhere. I'm not creating a classroom. That's not just my, that's just not my role. That's not what I'm doing in my life. That's not what's happening for me. I don't have the endurance nor the stamina. Love children. Think they're dope for other people. (laughs) (laughs) So... No, I and I love that she loves it. She enjoys that environment. She could not get a job back, uh, a call back for a job. And she- now that right there is something that as, you know, with every year that passes with, you know, my lifestyle being so pack up and go, pack up and go, that's something that I've been really fearful of in that yes, I have all this experience. I have this resume, but a lot of people view that as that person's old or that person's going to have to be paid this much and we want to pay somebody the bare minimum. Absolutely. So yeah. we get the CFY that, you know, the CFYs that are you know, just being collected like, yes, 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 let's eat, eat, eat these CFYs mm-hmm. for these positions because they're relatively inexpensive in comparison to veterans mm-hmm. and they have less resistance. They, we want people that are as pliable as possible. Come on, come on, CF. Let's get you into these roles because that is the most vulnerable that we are in our professional experiences is during those early years. And so she's accustomed to seeing that. Um, she, Because she had difficulty finding SLP jobs in her role near where she lived in, um, in Indiana, Indiana, because although the state itself is really having difficulty with staffing for school age where she lived particularly which is near the hub of indianapolis it's really actually hard to find a position so unless if she was willing to commute a whole hour she would have been able to find something that would pay her for everything but commuting an hour is a lot for a parent it's a lot for a person that wants to just do the job and be respected for doing the job like you're asking a lot to get somebody to make a livable and appropriate wage is a one-hour commute. Now, for some people in New York or L.A. or even Miami, they're like, that's nothing, one hour. I do that in my sleep. But some people appreciate their quality of life, and they don't want to spend two hours of their day every single day, 10 hours of their week, every in, week. Yes, in their car, commuting or in a, you know, on the train or whatnot. Now, also, you, you mentioned you know, for a person that's a parent, your your children end up having all sorts of extracurricular activities. Like, you know, my personal life, my son plays tackle football right now and 
you would think he's in the NFL with how many times a week that they practice. Hello, let's get him. Let's for get how him. Long? Okay. Future game goals. Hello. You know how much they make, girl? Well, I'm just saying that. he's built for it. But, you know, as a parent, I cannot imagine having to race one hour back to, you know, where I live to pick up my son and my, you know, and my daughter to go race to a practice, to race here, to race there, to get them in bed in time. It's, it's a lot. Well, that's when Burger King becomes very important. The impossible, <laughs> the impossible burgers start looking real possible. Like maybe let's just let's just let's discuss vegetables it. based on plant based. Let's talk about it, you know. So that that start looking real nice. Hey, PK, I see you over there. Download the app, collect the points. <laughs> I know you don't separate it on the grill because you ain't got time. But let's talk about Impossible Burger though. Let's. <laughs> Let's rub up clothes. Okay. Oh, Let's my goodness. <laughs> anyway, so, you know, she is a very, you know, problem-solving person. So she's like, okay, I recognize I'm not getting these jobs. I'm an adjunct professor at this point, um, but it's part-time. I'm looking for something full-time. Let me see what I can do. So we're branching out. We all know that SLPs are constantly curious about what other things they can do in the world of society outside of the space of SOP when they're, you know, having difficulty either finding employment or burnt out with being employed as speech language pathologists. It's the reason I'm part of the group on Facebook that's like talking about like what can PTOTs and SOPs use outside of this arena. So she's like looking, right? Mm -hmm. What do SLPs study in the school system that everybody talks about? Reading, literacy, hello. <laughs> this is like the most popular thing and this woman she gets orton gillum trained now i don't know if you know anything about orton Willem. i do, you, do i do you know about orton gillum okay girl what do you know let's so go ahead go ahead well i Tell was me. i was trained in in one of their programs and it the the program that i was trained in it was during my um master's degree uh studies it goes through every single possible way of spelling words and why we spell it that way. And you just have to memorize, memorize, memorize. That way you know how to spell these things correctly. Mm. Yes. Sounds thrilling. Oh, it was. It was. <laughs> <laughs> I was thoroughly enthralled. Boy, boy. Just let's, let us count the ways. So this woman is Orton Gillum certified. And basically when I went to kind of get a clarity on this, it was the first teaching approaches designed to help struggling readers. Mm -hmm. It's explicitly teaching the connections between letters and sounds. And this occurred in the 1930s with a neuropsychiatrist and pathologist, Dr. Samuel T. Orton, and an educator who is also a psychologist by the name of Anna Gillum. And that's how you they together developed the Orton Gillum approach for reading instruction for students, which what they consider to be word blindness, and later became known as dyslexia. And their approach together, man, Samuel T. Orton, woman, Anna Gillum, created something so significant in the world of literacy that it really helps their ability to do um, more dynamic ways of infusing that, 
by multisensory teaching strategies. Mm-hmm. It was paired with systematic sequential lessons focused on phonics, yes. language, and literacy were her wheelhouse. That's where she went to go find the education that she needed to teach this kind of component. Traditionally, I don't know too many teachers that are sitting here going walking around going, Orton Gillum certified when it comes to the reading environment, right? Right. That's um, that's not the norm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, usually in the school system, it's just, hey, can you do this? Great. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> this is a science-based approach. This is mm-hmm. where we as professionals in speech therapy are like, evidence-based approach, let's do this scientifically. Let's look at ways that we can really address this with objective data. Being interviewed by people that are like, what do speech therapists know about this? And she's looking at them like, we know the science. Let's talk about that. We've done the research. We've actually become certified. We're doing things that are leading the charge for the spaces of literacy in this country in an evidence-based way, which should be respected because that's really what a lot of people talk about is how much data do you have? It's really crucial. And in this actual particular approach, it shows that it has some data that supports it. I don't know it too much in detail in regards to other data that refutes it because speech language pathologists have that across our science over overwhelmingly like the benefits of one one exercise or approach versus the the detriment of it we have conflicting science constantly mm-hmm. people coming out with stuff and then people immediately arguing and going no Mm-mm. nope not at all we do have that so it makes it hard for us to be consistent as a science but in this aspect of things it was really a cutting and cutting edge in that time frame and respected space. And I like it because it was approached by two scientists that were not from the same background, a man and a woman. And I don't think that's the same background. When a man and a woman team up together, it seems to be a little bit more holistic and capable of accomplishing the goal that it's looking for. And I like dances like that when it comes to science because both of us are involved. We're 54% women in the United States of America. There should be our voice in science 50% of the time so that we can get outcomes that we're looking for. Um, If you're not present in the science, then you're not represented because they're gonna focus on things that they're interested in within themselves. And that's just truth. It's Mm -hmm. just truth. Right. That's how those things go. So her trying and working to get into spaces where she can be like a literacy coach, a teacher, like a Title I teacher where you have the opportunity to move in this arena like I'm gonna go and I'm gonna do reading and literacy or I'm gonna focus on this she was having a lot of roadblocks having a lot of difficulty not able to get jobs still having herself be questioned for her capacity and this is 20 plus years in the profession of speech language pathologist it's really a frustrating thing to feel like your profession lends itself to nothing else and you're constantly in a state of proving because ultimately when you're in the interview and they're looking at you like, I only know SLPs to like do S's and L's and R's and stuff. Like oh, you're gosh. just like, artic, right? Like lists. And you sit back and you go, 
Mm. No, our science is a little bit richer than that. Let's talk right. about that. But in the in some of the dynamics of your interviews, you're really looking at people with this what I would quote quote unquote ignorant lack of awareness, just narrow vision approach to interviews that are like, well, what can you do to the, for this position? My right. degree can tell you. My degree can tell you. I can do a lot. Right. right. I can do a lot. I study a lot of things. I think what also happens too, you know, is the opposite of what you said where they're like, well, don't you just work on R's and L's and S's? The opposite also happens in that you have a teacher or, you know, this campus that has a lot of children that are not scoring very well in reading and math and they want to find the scapegoat and they'll say, well, isn't that because this child is on speech caseload? Well, then the speech pathologist, the speech therapist, which is what they love to call us, must not be doing their job. Mm, not necessarily. <laughs> um, yes, there are skills and things that we work on that can increase a child's success in those two areas. But if they don't have the foundations of it, let's not blame it all on the SLP. Um, so I've, I've seen and experienced that as well, where the opposite happens, you know, where they aren't seeing test scores or they aren't seeing achievement, you know, as high and they start questioning the SLP because a lot of those kids end up being in the special education program with SLP services, speech, mm. speech or language services. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it's kind of a weird thing. Like we're devalued, but we're everything is tossed our way. Yes, absolutely. So it, it becomes one of those things where you sit back and you have a, a, a hard time because you're just thinking to yourself, "Really? Is it is it gonna be the dumping ground for everything that happens?" Yes. Yes. Um, yeah. 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 I, I don't know how to feel about this. And yet I'm making like six dollars an hour now. Like I feel like I'm I'm making nothing because I'm working so hard to try to fulfill all of these things. And it's there's a lot of things that are dumped on speech language pathologists, a lot of things that are dumped on professionals yeah. just for the case of budget analysis, like oh, it's so much cheaper just to add it onto somebody else's plate. Yes. But also to be like and as we scramble to catch up to it and, and create good data and do all these things, I think that's why the speech language pathology arena just keeps evolving and evolving is because those things get dumped. We get, we start being scientists and next thing you know, our, our practice is just swelling upon itself. And you're like, I shouldn't be doing all these, all of these things. I just really shouldn't. Let's leave room for other places and other people to do it. But yeah. Yeah, because we took it on because we're like, okay, I'll own it, no problem. Let's get it done. And yeah. I have nice syndrome problem. I have the nice syndrome issue, and I want to be nice in a room and not professional in a room. We become these people that have literally bit off, I think, more than we can chew. And we look at academics and go, "Why didn't you teach me this?" Well, what happened was we were so nice in the clinical arena. We just let everybody tell us what we can do. Yeah. Yeah. And the, it's the niceness and it's the 
you know, a, a small percentage of it is not really understanding the scope of what our job is. Um, I, if I had a dollar for every time I sat through a meeting, whether it was an IEP meeting or a meeting to discuss why this child is not doing well academically and maybe needs to be on an IEP, if I had a dollar for every time they said, well, this child can't spell because they're on speech. Not necessarily, or this child spells horrendously because he doesn't have all of his uh, age-appropriate speech sounds. And, you know, there's, <laughs> yes, it can be a factor, but this particular child knows that the letter B makes the B sound or this letter makes that sound. So let's, let's not just throw this at me. Um, there's also been the uh, discussion of, well, home language is such and such, so they really should be, um, uh, what's it called, ESOL, an ESOL student. Not necessarily. So I feel like a lot of times these kids are not identified appropriately in different areas of their academic career, and it just, speech or language therapy just becomes a catch-all. And they don't know what to do with them, and so they just, you know, throw the ball in our court, and we for some strange reason, happily catch it and mm. just roll with it when we shouldn't. Why would we? Why would we, though? <laughs> Why would we? Why would we say yes in spaces where we don't know anything that we're doing? Because we want to be continued, cutting edge, and advancing individuals. I don't know. I don't know why SLPs are doing what they're doing. Um, I also don't, I, I, there's so much, there's so much to unpack here in regards to the arena of our craft. It's like, ugh, I'm still, I'm still stunned over the fact that Asha's, uh, webpage is just flooded with people complaining about playing, paying their dues. And I'm sitting back like, y'all not going to do nothing. I've never known a business to be saying, oh no, no, no guys, you don't have to give us any money. It's okay. You're upset. Let me not do it. I've never known that. That's not reality. That's not real. What world are we living in that's sitting on the internet is going to do any of that for us? So as I listen to people like break down and analyze and all this stuff, I'm like, that's great. Now what? Yeah. Now there's plenty of analysis out there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And when we talk about how we got in the positions that we're in with caseload, productivity, all that stuff, it's because we didn't give any pushback. Correct. It's, it's the reason why people are giving education about how not to be nice. Correct. <laughs> stop being, pro like, stop being nice, start being professional. Stop. No. Stop people pleasing. Yeah. Just say no. Mm -hmm. Just say no. Um, when I was continuing this interview with this SLP, and I'm asking her about things that she's navigating, she actually applied for a position teaching literacy in a library. And they were looking for somebody who had a master's in library sciences. Now, have you heard of this master's I, in library sciences? I have not. I don't think anybody has heard about this because I was like, this is a science? Okay. And she, but she made it, she asked a really valid question. What do people in library sciences know about literacy? So the library wanted this program developed with a person with a master's in library sciences 
she not knowing what library sciences studies is like what do they know about literacy when you want a literacy program in your in your space but then you're offering $18 an hour $18 an hour for a master's person no way absolutely get a master's degree $18 an hour there's people working in in like restaurants in <laughs> oh no any type of thing any that is not corporate driven mm, boy you could do well because it's entertainment right and if you entertaining your customer you're getting a higher tip you're doing better you're financially in a better place right right no i mean i've i've driving around because obviously due to the pandemic things are pretty bad in the restaurant industry driving around where i live i've seen people offering 17 16 dollars an hour to 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 be a server and it's not knocking the server i'm just making an observation of why are you asking that this person have a master's degree to do this, to do what you're asking when they could make that elsewhere and not have a master's degree and not potentially carry that debt? And get tips. That's oh my gosh. Yeah. Tips. yeah. There's, <laughs> there's just this beautiful thing to me when I sit back and I think about the fact that we could really vote like make more money doing other things um if money was the the driving force after doing something you feel so passionately about Mm so when i'm listening to her apply for a job like literacy development coach individual whatever for the library and you hear that this is the amount of money that they're offering for the position and she's 26 years into it and she has a master's degree and she has all this wealth of knowledge you're like oh my god where do speech therapists go to leave their career at the end of it other than at the academic level and even then it's uncomfortable depending on where you are in terms of the financial space because you want to have a job that you work full-time in where you have benefits all of that but if you don't have a master's if you don't have a PhD, it's kind of hard. Clinical doctor, you have more opportunities, but who wants to go back to school after 20 plus years in a career? Like, There's a lot of things that you're going and processing and thinking about, um, and you want to navigate the arena where you have some level of longevity, and it's challenging. I don't mind this challenge because it just kind of highlights to me that I just need to be a more diverse individual as I move forward. Um, in the career outside of the traditional movements, because for me, my traditional movements are not going to work with the challenges of some of the things I've already explained. Again, I'm in a space of ambiguity. Who knows what's going to happen to Ingrid (laughs) DeSormes in regards to some of the drama that she has going on? Who knows? Because I still don't. I absolutely don't. Uh, But I'm going to be creative in what I'm educating and what I'm putting out there and what I'm telling people. Like, you have to know what you're getting into when it comes to this profession. You have to know the full scale. This story is not done. I do think it's going to end up being something we have to revisit and and create as a, as a two-parter um, because I feel like there's more to unpack with 
things that she was saying and things that we need to discuss. Yeah, um, I was just going to say that. There's still so much to unpack here. Mm-hmm. So much. So I think we're going to pause here because we don't want to take all of your time. But when I'm thinking about this veteran SLP, I'm just like, oh my gosh, as I t- think and process, like she's also been through all of the payer sources. She's also dealt with all of the things that we go through to figure out what is important versus not important in this professional arena. So we're definitely going to talk more about her in um, our next episode and continue the education about this and how you do this. How do you grow in this profession and feel satisfaction? And I want that for all of us. I think we need to know how do we grow in it. And so she's kind of um, a nice template to figure out what we do. But I, I do feel it's there's just more to be said, especially when it came to me directly asking her, well, what do you feel is your biggest miseducation? Because for her, she had some really clear statements. And I felt like that was something for us all to consider, mm-hmm. all of us. And there's some teaching opportunities in it. So um, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna revisit this for sure. Oh, I can't wait. <laughs> Now, um, in the space of preserving time, in the space of preserving what you guys are doing in a day, I do think we're going to go ahead and sign off. But come back, like listen to the rest of the story, because I think you would find some interest in processing it. I, I mean, for anybody coming into this profession and for anybody who's moving through it and wondering where to go, finding a lack of happiness, as John, uh, Jonathan White did, who was like, I'm leaving for his own personal reasons that were very justified. I think we all have some things to discuss about this this actual realm of professionalism in the healthcare, non-healthcare, medical, non-medical, pediatric, adult, just the whole breadth of what we're doing. There's so much discussion to continue to have. I don't know the answers to any of it. I continue to highlight that. This is just discussions, you know, we're all just considering it out loud with words for us all to talk about. Talk through it to try to find a way or a workaround or a solution. For ourselves, individually. Yes. I think a collective is hard to find when it comes to speech pathologists. I have not found a bunch of speech pathologists that are raising their hand going, I'm happy not to pay my dues because of the consequences. And because of the consequences of not being able to be a collective, we have to just talk about it and individually find our own solutions. And that's really the purpose of this show, because it is no longer about the collaborative effort of everybody coming together. We won't. We need to find ways to save ourselves. (laughs) Save yourself! (laughs) Well, it's like in the airplane, you you put your oxygen mask on first, and then you help your child or your neighbor. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. Um, there is no volunteering as tribute here. There's none of that. It's not, it's not what's happening. We're not operating in that fashion. Although me, I'm like, I volunteer. I volunteer. I volunteer as tribute. Let me just destroy it all by creating a podcast that's so offensive that people are staring at me going, holy smokes, this professional individual is just blowing up everyone. She's burning it to the ground. 
I mean, I have comfortably talked about UCF, FAU. I will talk about I will talk about any educational program in the state of Florida. I will talk about any job in the state of Florida. Whatever I've personally experienced, understand you will be seen. Yes. <laughs> Hello. Let's talk about you. Because I do volunteer as tribute. I do volunteer about being transparent. I do know that my salary has gone from you know, a certain level, 55,000 to a certain level of 150,000. And my, you know, professional experience across the board is interesting and all of it. Like, I do know that I have a wealth to give. So let me go ahead and just say it all. Say it proud, you know? (laughs) Yes. Tribute time. Let me, let me just volunteer myself. But I am willing to be comfortable in what happens with the consequences. I don't think everybody else is, and they don't have to be. So we just need to find personal solutions. And that's really the purpose of this show, is where you were miseducated, let's re-educate you, and let's get you in a place where you can do better. So we'll keep talking. Yep. Anything to add? Nothing to add. Just, you know, let's let's keep working at it. Well, guys, as you know, we have our email, we have our Facebook, we have our Instagram. We've talked about it on other episodes, so if you're keeping up with us, of course you know where to find us. If not, I'm not repeating myself. Just go back to listen to the other stuff, because it's great. (laughs) I'm not even going to say it, okay? I'm not going to say it. You know where to find me. That's it. (laughs) I mean, my answering machine is just waiting. I'm just like that 90s girl that's like, when is he going to leave me a message, though? (laughs) So I'm just done. I'm not even going to pretend to continue to advertise this thing that we know where it's at. Everybody just needs to make Ingrid's day and bombard her with with messages and DMs and comments. It just needs Mm -hmm. to come in in like a flood. Boy. Listen, I just feel like the girl that's sitting as a wallflower by the wall, waiting for the boy to be like, come talk to me. Like, I keep waiting, but it doesn't happen, and that's okay. Um, anyway, guys, thank you so much for joining us. As you know, we love it. We're down for it. We're here for you. So we'll continue, and we will revisit the story on the next episode for sure. All right. You guys have a wonderful rest of your day or night or whatever time frame you are listening to the story in. (laughs) Let's talk again. Bye.